Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning at Grace Point Church, worshiping our Lord and our King. And I hope that that prayer that Derek just prayed would be answered, that, that we would be encouraged this morning, and those that don't yet know the Lord would come to a, a saving faith in Him. Um, I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here. My name is Kevin. And um, a little bit about me. When I was a teenager, uh, I had the privilege of going to a small private boarding school. It's called a prep school. Why is it called a prep school? Because it was designed to prepare students for college, to prepare for a successful academic career. And so as a, as a prep school student, the expectation was that successful academic career and then following career would be your future. Another thing about as I was growing up as a teenager, I came from a relatively normal family, but it was a great family, a great environment. I had two parents, mom and a dad, and one sister and one dog. It was perfect. Nice little, nice little nuclear family package for me. Um, and also, I had the opportunity over several years of summer camp to come to a faith in Jesus Christ where I'd heard about Jesus, where I'd heard and learned about God, and I'd, I'd come to a place where um, I had a growing faith in the Lord. And the equation in my mind was very simple. Looking at all the things in my life, looking at the way my life had gone up until this point, God is good. That equals my life is good. It was a really simple equation, and that helped me to kind of have a perspective looking forward. And I had no reason, no reason at all to expect any change of course, that my life would ever take a different turn. But then the unexpected happened. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. And after a five-year battle with countless chemotherapy sessions and a lot of ups and downs, and ultimately a tumor metastasizing in his brain, the doctors conceded. And they decided to move from a plan for my dad's living to a plan for my dad's dying. They moved my dad to hospice care, and it wasn't shortly thereafter that I remember, just like it was yesterday, my mom walking into my room and a dull, flat whisper into my ear, Kevin, I just want you to know that your dad passed away last night. What was I going to do? Suddenly, my nice, neat equation for how life worked was blown apart. The completely unexpected happened. The completely unthinkable happened. And I don't know about you, maybe you're in one of those moments right now. You're in a season of life right now where what you expected just isn't coming around. What you expected to receive from God, you haven't received. Or maybe... You're not in one of those seasons right now. But you're coming through one. Or you're headed towards one. I think at some point, all of us in here, we're going to be faced with the question of, why? 
And how? Why did you let that happen, God? How could you let that happen, God? And we're going to be looking at a really incredible story this morning found in the Gospel of Luke where we are going to encounter two disciples who are in pretty much that exact place. They're asking a lot of questions. They're asking a lot of why and how. And we're going to see their progression this morning and hopefully it helps us as we journey in this life that isn't always God is good. That means life is good. Okay, so let's open up to uh, chapter 24 of Luke, and we're going to be starting at verse 13. So Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13, but as you're turning there, to catch us up to speed in this gospel, Luke has been giving us an orderly account of some unbelievable events that have taken place. See, there's this man that's been roaming around, and he's been doing incredible, unbelievable things, miraculous things. And he's been speaking with authority to the point where it's almost irresistible. This man has a huge following of people because he's doing things like healing the sick, he's making the lame walk, and he's even done something like feeding the multitudes. And people are flocking to this man Because he does some pretty unbelievable things, and he says some pretty unbelievable things. Some things that are giving the people of God who have been waiting for a Messiah hope. Finally, after generations upon generations of waiting, of waiting for a Messiah, for a king to come and overthrow the Roman Empire, to get us out from underneath this corrupted system of Jewish religion. Finally, maybe this man would be the answer. But then something unexpected happens. This man, who the people had been placing their hope in, gets nailed to a cross. And he gets buried in a tomb. Suddenly, all the hope is let out of the movement. Suddenly, the people that had been so optimistic, that had expected so much of this one man, have their dreams crushed. And they're, and they're asking, what are we going to do? Why, why did this ha- how did this happen? What are we going to do? So let's, um, let's jump into the text. We'll start Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So these two disciples, they're traveling down a dusty road, uh, I would imagine it's kind of late in the day. They'd waited around a few days for Jesus. They kind of remembered some things that he had said. Well, he was going to come back on the third day, but now it's late in the third day. Uh, no sign of Jesus. They're headed back home. They've kind of packed it up. So much for the Jesus movement. Well, let's go back home to Emmaus. 
and they're walking. Um, Mediterranean Sea would have been off to their west, the plain of Sharon, sun kind of setting down. It would have been a beautiful scene, but it is the most discouraging scene that you can imagine because these disciples have completely lost hope. And actually, they're arguing about the events that have just taken place. They're not quite sure they are fully comprehending even what just happened. And they're going back and forth, and um, the wording in the text suggests that it is a heated debate. This is an argument. And then, Jesus shows up. And he walks beside them, but they don't recognize him. I don't know about, I really don't know about you, when you read this, I'm I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. How could Jesus show up, walk alongside them, and they not recognize? They certainly don't have a reaction. It's, they're not shocked. They're not, whoa, whoa, where'd this guy come from? He doesn't just instantly appear. I think his approach is pretty natural, and he just begins walking with the disciples. They're not alarmed at all, and they don't recognize that it's Jesus. But I think whatever is going on, We've got to realize that God is up to something here. These disciples, they've kind, of left, they've kind of left their hope back in Jerusalem, back in that center of religion. See, in that time, if you wanted to find out about God, if you wanted to connect with him, you went to Jerusalem. Well, now they're headed the other direction. And when my dad died, that's exactly what I did. I headed the other direction. I didn't want to have anything to do with a God that would allow my dad to die. I couldn't make the connection. I couldn't reconcile what I knew about God and my experience. That's where we find the disciples. They're not looking for God. They're not looking for Jesus. And guess what? They don't see him. Let's, let's uh, Let's keep reading here. Verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus kind of continuing to allow the conversation to flow, continuing to to allow them to speak what's on their heart, what's on their mind. He follows up with another question. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since it all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said. But him, they did not see. Cleopas is speaking for both of them at this point. And he tells Jesus what's taken place in, recent, in, in the weekend that just, just went by. Their expectations, 
that are laid out right here are for a warrior king, somebody that's going to change everything, somebody that's going to flip the tables for who's in charge, the power structures are going to be completely turned over. And finally, there's going to be freedom. But that's not what they're experiencing now. Pause there on the road with heads downcast. They embody the reality they were experiencing. The power behind the movement had been completely let out. No momentum, no energy. And sure, there were stories. There were stories from the Marys, but wouldn't the mother of Jesus still be in shock? And wouldn't the other Mary, wasn't she just demon-possessed recently? I mean, this is all incredibly unbelievable. How, How could this be? I wonder if you've ever been there or you know someone that has, where everything in your world is kind of collapsing around you, where it is impossible to even interpret what's going on right now, let alone envision a bright future. Put yourself there. That's where these two disciples are. They are at the end of themselves. They've given up. And then Jesus comes with some of the most arresting words, unthinkable words. Look at this. Look at what he says in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures. Are you kidding me? This is the last thing a grief counselor would ever speak to somebody that's in this kind of grief. The last uh, fool? And this is really personal, too, because look, who are we to identify with with in the story? Jesus? No. If we put ourselves in this story, we're, we're right there with the disciples. And Jesus comes to us and says, you foolish, slow of heart. Okay, so when I first looked at this, I was like, okay, I'm just going to kind of try and skip through this part and kind of glaze over it so I don't have to uh, deal with it. But then I realized how pivotal it is. This isn't Jesus adding guilt upon guilt and shame. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, you, you guys messed up. Shame on you. No, this is Jesus coming to the disciples and saying, looking them face to face, stopping there, they're stopped on the road. Guys, this isn't what you've come to know. This isn't the path to wisdom. I immediately think, when we have a language like fool and foolish, I immediately think of the Proverbs, where we constantly have that comparison between the wise and the foolish. Now think about who's writing the Proverbs. It's a father to a son. This is fatherly advice given to sons. 
And Jesus is saying, look, don't you remember? Don't you remember as we were traveling along the road? Don't you remember the miracles that I did? Weren't you there at the feeding of the multitudes? Didn't you see what happened when I broke bread? Don't you remember hearing the words I spoke on that hillside? Don't you remember that this is all how it was planned out? I don't know if there's any real detail in the text as to what's happening in the disciples as Jesus is doing this, as Jesus is opening the Scriptures to them and beginning to speak to them from the Old Testament, beginning to speak to them all the way from Moses, all the way through the prophets. But I think something is already changing Something is already changing in the minds and the hearts of the disciples because they go from that, that kind of uh, heated debate where they're going at each other like, oh, no, Jesus said this, no, no, Jesus said this, blah, 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 to then making fun of this stranger on the road for like, uh, what, what do you mean? You don't, you don't know what happened? You just got to, did you not get the paper this morning? So from that, and now they've moved over here to hospitality. They're about to invite Jesus in. Watch, watch what happens here in the text. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in. See, up until this point, we've had unbelievable. We've had Jesus pointing out how foolish, how slow of heart. But I think what we all know is that there is oftentimes a gap between knowing and believing. There was a gap for the disciples between what they knew and what they were actually going to be able to believe. To this point, it had been completely and utterly unbelievable. Now, I can speak kind words. I can speak the truth to my gorgeous wife over and over and over again, that she is doing a fantastic job at home with our kids, training them and loving them well and raising them up to be the type of people that we want them to be. But on those really tough days, on the days when, oh man, the lesson just doesn't seem to be sinking in, or wow, we cannot make any headway today. This is not working. This is really not how I drew up the day. This is not how I planned it out. This is not what I was expecting on those kind of days, Catherine is going to need something more. She's going to need to believe that she is doing a fantastic job. And I can speak into that. I can continue to tell her and encourage her and say, yes, you are. Don't let this circumstance define how you're seeing the bigger picture. 
Simply knowing doesn't do much for us in the moments of crisis. When there's a gap between knowing and believing, we can lose sight of the path to wisdom. Now let's keep, uh, let's keep going here. We're looking at verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Their, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning with us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Look, (laughs) I want to make this really, really clear. I know, I already know that the scriptures tell me to love my wife sacrificially. I know that. But, When it comes right down to it, when I'm faced with a decision and I have the opportunity or the chance to actually give something up, my response is going to demonstrate what I actually believe. Am I going to give up something that I really want to do? That I've planned on doing for a long time? if it means that that is what's going to support my family the best, if that's what's going to demonstrate a sacrificial love. That's the shift from just simply knowing to believing. It always results in action. And look, as soon as the disciples see, light bulb. They could have really wanted to stay right there wanted to stay in that beautiful fellowship of, with Jesus where he's breaking bread, there's a fellowship meal going on, there's interaction, there's engagement with, wow, their Savior who they thought was dead but now is alive, but they can't. And Jesus doesn't want them to because what happens? As soon as they see him, he disappears. Why? Because they've got places to go. And what happens? That very hour, they set out back toward Jerusalem. Back to that spot where their Savior was crucified. Back towards that center. Where to this point, this is where God has been. This is where you get your answers, your questions answered about God. Let's look at, look at the text. 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus had broken bread. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So we have unbelievable. So some stories about an empty tomb. And then we have unbelievable. Notice how that changes. Unbelievable. To unbelievable. He's alive. See, they had the facts. The facts were, Jesus is dead. The tomb is empty. 
The truth was, Jesus is dead, the tomb is empty. He's alive. And now everything for the disciples changed. Now suddenly, they're able to reconcile a suffering Messiah with the King of Kings. The experience of Jesus out on the road or around the table or gathered as little churches all over the place, all over the globe, awakens us and deepens our ability to see and believe. That gap between knowing and believing starts coming together for the disciples. And possibility turns to probability, and then takes one step further to actuality. And it results in them hitting the trail, saying, peace, Emmaus, we're going back to Jerusalem. That's where stuff is happening. That's where the other apostles are going to be. That's where the other disciples are going to be. And they share their stories, and they share the accounts of seeing Jesus. And it's confirmed. When we see and believe Jesus, we're driven by the gospel towards a community of faith. We're driven right here. But it doesn't end here. From here, we are sent out. And that's what Luke writes about in the book of Acts. That's his, the second volume of, of uh, his writing. It goes, Luke, Acts. He writes about a church that is all about going to the ends of the earth. The church is where we're reminded of what we've seen as true and are compelled out to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want you to think about the Together Initiative for a second. And oftentimes when we're out and about, we get asked the question, hey, how does that work with church and school and social services and medical care provider? Like, how do you get all that to work? That's kind of unbelievable. And we say, yeah, it, it is. We'll try and explain it. But to a certain extent, you have to experience it. You have to step into that space. You have to see it happening. You have to see the little touches that this church, that individuals are able to make on the lives of those in the community. And those stories of grace and the stories of gratitude that come back. When we start seeing that, when we start opening our ears to those kind of stories and opening our eyes to see those kind of things, something happens. Something happens in our hearts. Very much like it did for the disciples. Now, for me, I, I'm not going to see Jesus in the flesh. I don't, I, I don't think. But what I am going to see is Jesus enfleshed in the people of this church. In the people who were able to serve and reach. In the people overseas that our various mission trips go to. That's where I'm going to see Jesus, that's where I'm going to be reminded of the truth. That's where I'm going to begin to believe again.
See, the gap between believing and knowing impacts our going. The gap for the disciples, getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So what does that look like for you? What is the gap between knowing some stuff and believing to the point of acting on it? What is that gap for you? Think about it. We have to see Jesus. We have to see that upside-down kingdom where everything's flipped, where the weak are suddenly strong, where the voiceless suddenly have a voice. And we have to recognize that this whole thing started with Jesus' rejection. Then it moved to disciple collection. And then out from the church to gospel explosion. We don't just show up to church to have nice warm fuzzies on Sunday. This is to encourage us to go out from here. And I'm, I'm proposing that out, out there, that's where we see Jesus. When we believe it, we're compelled to such a clear and strong vision that we begin to proclaim the unbelievable. And we start living out the unbelievable. See, for me, it would be years after my dad's death before I would begin to reconcile and process through some of that stuff. See, I thought that if I just walked away from that pain, I'd be good to go. But that's not the case. That hung around. And eventually, I got to the point where I was shouting at God. How could you do this? Why would you do this? This doesn't make any sense. How does this fit into any kind of plan? This is not the way it was supposed to go. Look at the things that I have done for you. Look at what I've given up for you. I followed you. I expected way more from you, God. This was going to be a slow awakening for me. But Jesus was patiently opening my mind up to the Scriptures. He was patiently giving me little pictures here and there of what it looks like. And he was opening my heart and softening my heart to the unbelievable. That even in the midst of those circumstances, even in the midst of that pain, there was something much, much bigger than my small little expectations for God. And that process of deepening belief continues as I see Jesus at work. That unbelievable truth that one thing, this is what compels us toward the gathering of believers that helps us remind, that helps to remind us of the unbelievable truth on a regular basis. And it demands a response. What did the church look like in the first century? How did they respond to this news? You've got to look at the book of Acts. You've got to read that. It's incredible how the church responds 
And it should be so challenging to us. Doing because we believe, because we've seen. Not doing because we feel like, yeah, that's our duty. Not feeling like that's, because, that, that's how we stay connected in this social club. No. Doing because that's what Jesus did. That's what love requires. So when the truth of the gospel is believed, it translates into action. We not only see Jesus, but we get to give a picture to those that we're traveling with. And they have the opportunity to respond as well and get on the road with us. So what are the areas of your life where you've gained some knowledge, where you're pretty confident in what you know? But it's not quite translated into believing. It's not quite translated into action. I want you to just take 30 seconds right now. Take out your smartphone, take out a pad of paper, whatever's around you, and write down that one thing. This is where you get to interact. Write down that one thing that you know. It's just, it's just really hard to believe. As you're doing that, I want to share a little bit of a, of a story. This is, this is real life. I'm going to take the names out. But this just happened. I just heard about this. I want you to picture a man coming from a family of many brothers and sisters. Great Great family environment, great life, but obviously some tension here and there. And I, want, I want you to imagine the parents growing older and the siblings all taking care of the parents. And then eventually the father passes away. All the kids rally around mom. And they begin to care for their mom in whatever way they can. A will has been drafted. The couple, when dad was still alive, a will has been drafted. And it's pretty clear that uh, it was drafted in their, their right minds. And money's going to go to everybody equally where it belongs. But then, gosh, once dad's gone, mom kind of starts losing her mind a little bit. Dementia sets in. Now she's not quite thinking clearly. And one of the brothers just happens to be a little bit closer to her, proximity-wise, visiting all the time, sometimes even living at the house. And at some point, the will is changed. Out of a family of over 10 kids, all the inheritance goes to one. What do you think that does to those relationships of brothers and sisters? How do you think they're going to move on from that? 
our text, the Gospel, the message that I've been preaching up here this morning says, well, you've got to forgive. How? How can those that essentially had their inheritance stolen from them get to a point of forgiveness? The gap between believing and knowing, and it impacts our going. If we're not able to forgive in that situation, eventually, we're not headed down the path of wisdom. Guys, look at me. If we're not able to forgive in that situation, as extreme as it is, we're not headed down the path of wisdom. I am not trying to add guilt upon guilt upon shame. I'm saying this in the most pastorly way that I know how. We've got to be a church that models this and exemplifies this. So what are the areas in your life? Because Jesus really doesn't offer us an answer to the why and how questions. Why would you do this? How could you possibly? He doesn't really answer that. Search the Scriptures for it. You're probably not going to find an answer for those questions. But what he does do constantly, time and time again, is he calls us to respond. Respond in the way that's been laid out, in the way that's been modeled. Look at this. Here's some of the things that we hear about. To be self-controlled, kind, trusting, humble, honoring, others serving, truthful, dedicated, forgiving. And all of the other one-anothers that we find in the Scriptures. Almost 60 of them. Almost 60 one-anothering verses that tell us how to interact with each other. We can know it. Good. But are we going to believe it? And is it going to impact our action? It certainly did for the first century church. And we're still talking about them today. We're still talking about their hope. We're still talking about their Christianity. Because belief pushes us towards unbelievable. Imagine what it would look like if we were all engaging with each other under the new rules of the upside-down kingdom, driven by the gospel, driven by love, and on the path towards wisdom, free from guilt, free from envy, free from anger, free from greed, one anothering well. What kind of life would we be tracking with? Where would we be headed? What kind of gospel would we be living? What kind of picture and experience would we be giving to the people we work with, play with, live with, and share meals with? The bottom line is this. When we're faced with the unexpected, we need to be reminded of the one unbelievable truth that will set us on the wisest course, which is leading us to doing the unbelievable. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word to us. Lord, thank you for 
the opportunity to see ourselves so clearly in this story, in this account. Lord, thank you that you work through just regular people. Thank you that you showed us through your word. You helped us to know the wisest path to take. Lord, thank you that you didn't just open the word to us, but you showed us so that we could see, that we could believe, and that so our entire lives could be changed, so our course could be corrected from veering off to headed straight back to you. God, I pray that when the unexpected happens, we would remember that you're there with us. That we would remember that we have a Savior who suffered, who died, was raised, and is alive and active right now. And that we can see you in the faces of those we serve. We can see you in the faces of those we worship with. God, I pray that you would be working in hearts right now as only you can. Open our eyes, God. Help us to see and point us right back to other believers who can encourage us and strengthen us. But don't let us stay there. Help us get out onto the road and do and experience the unbelievable. We love you, Lord, and we thank you and pray that you would go with us out into this week, into our Monday through Saturday, with a clear vision, with courage and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.